0: this morning as we come together, as we enter a new chapter uh, in the book of Revelation, as we enter a new section in the book of Revelation, I pray that you would come and you would awaken us, uh, even as we sing that last hymn about martyrs bending their neck to the steel or facing the lions. Uh, gory Maine, we're asked the question, who shall follow in their train? I pray, Father, that uh, would it be necessary we would be those people. we would be willing to bear witness to the cross of Jesus. I pray for those who don't know Jesus that you would open their eyes. I pray for those who do know Jesus that you would open their eyes wider. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen and amen. You know, I was thinking uh, last night and this morning about what... How to open. You're always thinking about how to open. What's the best way to open a sermon, right? What's the best way to get people's attention, or what's the best way to, to, to tie things together? And what came to my mind was the, the whole idea of assessment. Like, do, do you like being assessed for things? Like maybe get a work assessment, or the standard if you're a, t- a kid and you've got to take SATs. Do you like those kind of assessments? Most people don't like to be assessed unless it's interesting, right like i the personality tests who doesn't like taking those because you like to find out who you are right you know so i've had to take them in business world i've had to take them for church planting right so for example if you're familiar with the disc test DISC my profile is d equals i almost none of those exist by the way on the myers briggs i'm enfp extrovert intuitive feeler perceiver I know when you guys think of me you think of a feeler. That's exactly right. That's what my that's what my personality test bears out. But there are other tests that we would rather not look at. You see when I was uh, we moved out here to plant a church and then eventually we planted it. It was successful and I resigned and went back into the business world. And then when Judy and I were attending here, I was asked to come on staff. And in order to come back Uh, To be ordained again, it was a different denomination. I had to go through the whole process again. And at some point, they wanted me to take this very in-depth psychological profile. I mean, like 800 questions. Some of you are probably familiar with it. And it's the kind of profile that that is trying to root out whether or not you are a serial killer or something like that. And I remember when they told me I had to take it, I said, I thought, I wonder if they make everyone do this, you know. did, Did they make you do that, Jamie? See? How it works is you go to a psychiatrist, and you take the test, and then when the results come in, he sends one to the people who ask for it, in my case, the presbytery, and then if you like, he'll discuss it with you. And so the results came in, and I went to visit the psychiatrist, and he said, well, your results are in. And I said, well, okay. I said, did you send them to presbytery? And he said, yes. And I said, anything else? And he said, no. I said, did, they, did I pass? And he said, you, you passed? And I said, well, good. I'll see you. And he said, don't you want to know what your results say about you? And I said, I passed, right? And he said, yeah. I said, I'm good to go. And I took it and I left. I don't even know where that is. So for all I know, I'm like one hair underneath crazy. But... There's some things you don't want to know. There's some assessments you don't want to take, some that you do. And so I was thinking, you know, we've been in the book of Revelation. We're halfway through. And I thought, how would you assess if you really understood the book of Revelation? What assessment would you use? And see, if you've been here for longer than, let's say, two weeks, you should subject yourself to this assessment. Because if you ask yourself, okay, we're going to assess ourselves as to our knowledge of the book of Revelation. Here's what I'm not going to ask you. Do you know the content? Could you give me an outline of chapters 1 through 11? Could you explain the purpose and all of these things? Could you do that? The assessment that is most important with regard to the book of Revelation is whether you are becoming more and more outwardly faced. That's it. If you're becoming more and more outwardly faced, you can say, I think I'm beginning to understand the book of Revelation. And if you're not becoming more outwardly faced in the past, say, six or seven months, if you've been here the whole time, then you're not, you don't understand a thing that it's saying. You might have lots of notes. You might have notebooks. Um, people have come out the back and they're like, man, that was the greatest thing ever. If it, it might sound like the greatest thing ever. But if it's not transforming you, really the assessment is maybe you need to revisit it. Like, what is it saying? You see, because when you look at the book of Revelation, just by way of review... We tend to talk about purpose a lot. I have, but really everything in the New Testament, at least, is occasioned by something. There's some problem that it's seeking to address. And if you remember, in the book of Revelation, the problem that was being addressed was that these seven churches, which really represent all churches, were struggling to be outwardly faced or to be able to bear witness to those around them. In other words, not just serving their community, but actually bearing witness, telling people about the gospel of jesus that was a problem and if it makes you feel any better it's always been a problem right all the way back in the old testament god started with abraham and he called him to the and said that his descendants would be a light to the nations and they would draw people in and then in the new testament we were all called to go right it's a command to go into all the world with the gospel and yet we wouldn't have the new testament if people didn't struggle with that in other words, you almost never, or you, well, you don't ever hear a New Testament letter that's addressed that says something like this. You know, dear, uh, dear Philippians, praise God, you are the greatest church ever. You never fight, you never complain, and all you do is take the gospel to the people around you. It'll be a really short letter. Instead, all of the letters say basically, you know, Philippians, I beg you, please get along. Stop fighting. In other words, all the letters revolve around problems that are happening in the church. Every letter in the New Testament at some level has to do with the fact that the church is being inwardly faced as opposed to outwardly faced. That they're, they're more concerned about what they're concerned about than they're concerned about what Jesus is trying to do in the world. And so it would make sense that the culminating book in the New Testament of the whole Bible that says if you haven't got it yet, here's the problem that the church always struggles with, and is it what does it mean to bear witness to those outside of us, the, the outside of our walls, and the question to the extent you understand the Book of Revelation is the extent to which you will be outwardly faced. You'll be concerned about those outside, and so there are a couple. Remember, the purpose is this: though you might be afraid, you know, in the original context there was persecution by the Romans, and you say, "Well, gosh, you're telling us we're supposed to be outwardly faced, but that could get us killed." Fortunately, that's not the case in the United States. But remember, the purpose is basically to, to encourage the church that say, even though you have this problem, that you need to engage it because Jesus has won already. That at his death and, uh, on the cross and his resurrection, he completely conquered sin and death. There's nothing more for him to accomplish as far as that's concerned. The book of Revelation teaches us that he will win in the future. In other words, he has won completely, but in the future, everything will be cleaned up in the way it's supposed to be. But even more so, that even now, he is winning even now as we engage the world, Jesus is winning. Even when it doesn't look like it, he's winning. So we have the, the, this problem. It's addressed with the purpose. And then finally, I just wanted to remind you of this word, recapitulation. Right? It's a fancy word that theologians use for basically repetition. That when you read the book of Revelation, this message is so important, I think, to be outwardly faced or to bear witness to the world is more of what John would say, that he repeats it over and over and over and over again. You know what you're going to hear today? The same thing you've heard every week that we've been in the book of Revelation. It's always from a different angle. Maybe sometimes it's deeper, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's more forward-looking, sometimes it's more backward-looking, but it's almost always the same. So when we looked at the seven seals, we talked about the fact that that's basically from the, the, the time of Jesus' resurrection to the time he comes back again. That's what it looks like. And the same time frame is covered with the seven trumpets, and they will be covered again with the seven bowls of God's wrath. The same time frame is covered today in chapter 12. But chapter 12 begins a new part of the book of Revelation. So with all of that said, um, as we jump in, I just want to, if you're a note taker, there are basically two signs and a child. That's all we're going to look at this morning. This is one of those weeks where I thought, okay, I need to do all of chapter 12. And then after, uh, by about Thursday afternoon, I said, ah, I'm, not good. I'm only going to do verses 1 through 6. So two signs and a child is all we're going to look at. Some people all the way, as, as just a side note, have asked me where the growth group questions. You're not in a growth group, but you like the homework to follow along. We're only producing those now when growth groups are in session because they're a lot of work. So if you're wondering where they are, they don't exist right now. So um, your notes will have to do. Let's look at the first thing, the sign. Look at verse 1. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The first thing, remember, it's hard to preach one chapter in Revelation without always going back to the last because they're interlaced. And so chapter 11, John is having this vision of heaven, and the last thing he saw was heaven opened up, and he saw the Ark of the Covenant, and he saw this thunder and rumbling of God. And this is just following right into it. And the first thing he says is, I saw a great sign. Now that should tell you right off the bat that whatever is coming next is not to be taken literally. But we talked in this book that when you, you should take things symbolically, whenever you can take them symbolically, and not until you know for sure it's a literal something or other should you take it that way. But he tells us right here, I saw a sign. And in the New Testament, a sign is just like a sign is any other place, is a sign points to something else. Right? So when we do the Lord's Supper, it's a sign and a seal. What does it point to? It points just like a road sign, What it points to the body and blood of Jesus given for us. And so this is a sign, whatever comes next. And so what he says is, I saw this sign, and the sign appeared in heaven, and it was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now who or what is this woman? Now if you read this passage, you'd be very tempted to think that it's who? Mary? It might be, but not here. In order to understand this part of Revelation, like every other part of Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as sun, moon, and stars. But almost every person, from every different angle that that comments on the book of Revelation, agrees that this image comes from Genesis chapter 37. Remember Genesis chapter 37 is where Joseph, uh, the, the one of the twelve brothers, was having dreams and he wasn't very smart about how he used his mouth. And he told his brothers, he's like, you hey guys, I had the wildest dream last night. There were all these like sheaves and they were all bowing down to me. You guys are the sheaves and I'm the other one. Isn't that wild? No. And the same thing happens in, in verses uh, in verse nine, he basically says, "Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me." Everyone I could find said that that image is to take us back to Israel itself. Right? Israel is the sun. Leah is the moon. And the eleven stars are all of her twelve sons, and that, in other words, the woman equals Israel. But not just any Israel, the woman equals true Israel because we're going to find out later in this chapter that the woman is also equated with the church. So at the beginning of the chapter, the woman, the, the woman is equated with Israel and at the end of the chapter, the woman is equated with the church. And if you remember, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, that Israel and the church eventually become one and the same thing. In other words, the church doesn't replace Israel, but the church is a fulfillment of what God was doing in and through Israel. And so the woman is... God's covenant community, let's call it. And so what does that mean? Well, if you look at the next verse, verse 2, she's pregnant. It says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And that woman is a shout-out for all the boys who liked the Legos last week. <laughs> it's from a website called Brick Testament, by the way. So on one hand, you have this woman... And on the other hand, she is crying out with birth pains and agony of giving birth, right? And, you know, if, you've ever, if you're a husband, if you've ever seen your wife giving birth, you realize what this is or isn't like, right? I mean, I remember when we had our first child. Um, m- my wife bears pain pretty well, so she was having contractions, and she would just sort of grimace. Mm. And when I took her to the emergency room, there was a woman who was on the floor, holding on to her husband's leg, screaming at the top of her lungs, so much so I could hardly even be in the room. And I went to the lady and I said, you know, my wife's contracted like every minute. And Judy was up sitting up there. She'd go, "Mm." That's not what this is talking about. This woman is the other one. That she's in agony and she's in pain. But what's what's going on here? So you've got this woman. If the woman is Israel, what does it mean that she was pregnant and in agony and in pain? Well, it's simply this, is that Israel, this covenant community, would be the one who brought forth the Messiah, that she was pregnant with the Messiah. Israel was pregnant with the Messiah. And as you go throughout redemptive history, no one would argue that Israel's history was not agonizing. And at every point in redemptive history, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. In fact, right as soon as Abraham is called, in chapter 12, he is called. I'll make you a blessing to the other nations, and whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And it says, Abraham went. And you say, and in the very next passage, there's a problem, and they go down into Egypt, and he says, hey, why don't we lie to Pharaoh? You tell him you're my sister. And then Pharaoh takes her into his house and sleeps with her. And at that point, if you're the covenant community, you're thinking it's over. The jig is up. That God promised he would do this through Abraham, and it's not. But you know what? God worked through that. He worked through it with Abraham. He worked through it with Joseph. He worked through it with Moses. He worked through it with Jacob. He worked through it it with all the patriarchs, ultimately through Saul and through David, and all the way up to Jesus. That it was not an easy road from Abraham to Jesus, and yet the birth ultimately happened. And that's what we're going to hear a little bit later. But before we do that, John wants to make a distinction. He sees two signs. He sees a great sign, and then he sees another sign. In other words, one's really important, and one is, I guess, of average importance. Look at verse 3. He says, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head and seven diadems. So what's the deal with the dragon? This is the first place that the dragon really shows up here in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting because as I was researching this, you know, every single culture in the world, but especially the cultures in the Middle East, have a dragon story that sounds almost exactly like this one. I, I printed a couple for you because re- there were so many I couldn't remember. In Egypt, the mother goddess Isis is pursued by a red dragon Typhon and flees to an island and there she gives birth to the sun god Horus Ugaritic the storm god Baal defeats the seven headed serpent Leviathan, Mesopotamia Marduk kills, the god of light kills the seven headed dragon Tiamat in Greco-Roman mythology the the goddess Leto pregnant with Apollo is pursued by the dragon Python she's rescued by Poseidon who places her in safety and after Apollo is born he slays Python the dragon so what's going on here? If all these other cultures have stories where there's a woman who's pursued by a dragon, she's able to give birth, and then the, the one she gives birth to slays the dragon, where does that come from? And the answer, I think, it comes from the very beginning. In other words, why does John do this? He could have done anything else. And the answer, I think, first of all, is contextualization. He's speaking in a language that people can understand. Everyone in the Greco-Roman world would have understood there's an issue with a woman and a dragon, and what John is saying here is that this story of this woman and this dragon is actually the true story of all, above all stories. This is the one they're all shooting for. In other words, C.S. Lewis, if you've read much of him, he was, wasn't a Christian growing up, and yet he was fascinated by Norse mythology. And then when he finally was introduced to the person and work of Jesus, he was overwhelmed because he said, In Jesus, all of the myths... Became it, it was reality. The myth, the myth that I've been looking for, the thing that I was hoping for in Jesus was real. And what John is saying, that, that you might be, have known your whole life that there's this story of this dragon who's pursuing the woman and this one who would come and conquer the dragon. Here is the true story. And by the way, every story that you like follows a pattern similar to this. I bet if you looked at the box office top ten hits... By the way, that's what John is doing here. Some people who've been in the past said... I don't know about you, you to talking about movies in the sermon. Yeah, I just don't know if that's godly or not. What John is doing is a, bit, a very similar thing. He's using analogy that they would have understood to explain how the gospel works. And if you looked at the box office top ten, I didn't do this, but I'd be willing to bet, if you looked at the his, history of, of movies, that most of the top ten movies would all have the same plot. And the, same, the plot is basically this, that there's someone who's in distress, often a damsel, And a hero comes to save the damsel from distress. And in the process of saving the damsel, the hero either dies or at least looks like he dies. And then at the end, he comes back and he's alive and it's a happy ending. Right? You know that story. In fact, you know that story so well, that's why you cry at the end of Old Yeller. Remember if you've seen Old Yeller? If you're under 30 and your parents haven't showed it to you, shame on them. Remember Old Yeller, he, he saves, he saves Arliss from a wolf. And in the morning, you expect to go into the barn and find Old Yeller wagging his tail because he saved Arliss from a wolf. And when you walk in the barn and open the door and Old Yeller is there growling with, uh, with foam on his mouth, your heart sinks. Why? Because the story that your heart knows, when you walk into the barn, Old Yeller is supposed to be there wagging his tail and, and jumping up on you because the hero always comes back from the dead. The hero always beats the dragon and comes out victorious. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on in your heart. John is just tapping into that. So he says, on one hand, I saw this sign of a woman, this community. On the other hand, I saw the sign of this dragon who was pursuing her, who was going to war. Now, someone asked, why does he have seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns or diadems? Because those are numbers of perfection. We'll get into that more maybe the next time because we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. It either means he was completely evil or he was given complete control of something or he's pretending to have complete control. But that's really not important for now. What's important is his aim. So if you look at verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And as the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So the first thing it says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. We're going to talk about that again more the next time. Because people are divided, because stars can either mean people or it can mean angels. And does it mean he struck down people or does it mean he brought down angels from heaven with him? It's probably the latter, because the next thing is about the war in heaven. What we do know is that dragons, the way they kill you is they use their tail apparently, not their fiery breath. And that's what he used to strike down a third of the heavens. What's more important, I think, is what comes next. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, what's going on here? You know, you understand this passage, by the way, if you've ever seen the movie Terminator. I'm not recommending it. It's rated R, but it's pretty good. Remember the movie Terminator basically is about uh, these in in some distant future, machines have taken over humanity and there's only a remnant of humans left and the one who will come to save them is named John Connor. Interestingly enough, his initials are JC. And John Connor will save them. And so what the robots determined to do, the best way to stop John Connor is to send someone back in time to stop him before he's ever born, to kill his mother. And so the whole movie is about the three movies about that. In some sense, that's exactly what's happening right here. If you remember in the book of Genesis, and when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, curse was brought on all of creation, and God came and he begins to mete out discipline. And the first thing that God says to anyone is to the dragon. In Genesis, he's called the serpent, by the way. Later on in this passage, he says the dragon is the serpent. So what does God say to the serpent? The first thing that God says to the serpent is he makes the serpent, not us, a promise. He says the seed of the woman will crush your head. In other words, one of her children is going to utterly destroy and kill you. You will bruise his heel, but ultimately he will be victorious. And so from the beginning of creation, the dragon has known that one of the seeds of the woman will come and eventually kill him. And so if you were the dragon, what would you do? From Genesis 3.15 till present day, you would be doing everything you could to stop the birth of that child. You'd be doing everything you could. And that's why you get all these problems with Israel. That's why you have all the nations are, are, are equated with demonic powers oftentimes, because they are trying to stop the birth of the child. All the way up, to, even until you get to the New Testament, even after the child is born, the child, they seek to destroy him. Do you remember? After Jesus is born, Herod sends people to kill all the male children in the city of Bethlehem. And it doesn't work. Why? Well, because you look at verse 5, it says, she gave birth to a male child, and one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And he says, but the child was caught up to God and to his throne. So what's going on here? It says, for one, the dragon failed. He wasn't able to stop the birth of the child. Not only did he fail in stopping the birth of the child, but he ultimately failed. Because what you have here in verse 5 is a summary of the whole gospel that you find in the whole Bible, in the whole New Testament in particular. And you guys are thinking, what? It says she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God. To his throne. In other words, you have in this verse, you have the birth of Jesus culminating in the ascension of Jesus. And the question is, why didn't he include all the stuff in the middle? Well, for one, if you were here at the beginning, during the introduction, I talked about the Burger King principle, which I don't remember why it was called that. But the Burger King principle basically says, anytime you, tr- you can't say everything anytime you try to say something, otherwise you say nothing at all. So in other words, if John wanted to fill in this, the, 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 the middle part here, he would just write a gospel, which he did. But here, he's just giving us the, thumb, the thumbnail sketch. And just so you know, I mean, you see that oftentimes in the New Testament. So for example, let me read to you quickly. Romans 1. Verses 1 through 4, he, he, Paul opens up, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and who is declared to be the son of God of power, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So he takes him right from his declaration of being the son of God to, to his ascension, but he doesn't cover all of the stuff in the middle. 1 Timothy 3.16 is very similar. He says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, taken, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. In other words, you have a thumbnail of what the gospel is, or at least the person and work of Jesus is. But what you see here is, for one, that Jesus... What's happened is this passage is almost like a funnel. It starts with the covenant community, and it works its way down until it actually is a woman, Mary, who gives birth to a male child, singular, Jesus. But then it begins to spread back out again because this child was born to reign, and so it says he he is the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's from Psalm 2, by the way. Some translations say he's the one who will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. Now, what the rod of iron was for was discipline, and it was shattering those nations who had come against him. But also at the end where it says that he, her child was caught up to God and to his throne, the, the language there is actually the word snatched up. It's, it's, it's almost a violent word. That, in other words, there's no way the dragon could have won. There's no way that, that Jesus, that, that at, the cr- at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, it's almost like he, was, he snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, to use that cliché. And so Jesus now reigns on high. So the, the dragon fights, he tries to devour the child, but he is born, he lives, he lives a life we should have lived, he dies a death we should have died, and he raises again from the dead to rule all of the world. And then that takes us to, so what about now, after the, the, the resurrection of Jesus and ascension? In verse 6, it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, if you remember, 1260 days is 42 months. It's also about three and a half years. We talked about that before as well. 42 months basically equals the whole time that the church lives on the earth between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. In other words, that Jesus came, he was born and he raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven. And then at that point, the covenant people of God, in this case, the church, is actually taken to the wilderness and preserved the whole time until he comes back. So there are a few things that you should be mindful of there. One is that the place where the church lives, the place where we live, is the wilderness, and there's no getting around it. In fact, most of us, when you think of it like a bad thing, it's like, man, I'm really in the weeds now. I feel like I'm just wandering in the wilderness. And if you feel like that, you're exactly where God wants you to be. You're exactly where the place God has prepared you to be. Because when you look at the Old Testament... The Old Testament was a place of of assessment, for sure, a place of testing for Israel and the covenant community, but it was also a place of protection for the covenant community. In other words, the Egyptians were coming after Israel. God didn't take them to a city. He took them into the wilderness in order to protect them, that the wilderness is a place of protection. It's not a bad place. And most of us think when things get difficult and when things get hard, we say, God has brought me to this place to punish me, or God must have brought me to this place to discipline me. And you know, he may be disciplining you, but he's also protecting you. It's just a fact. And he brings us to the, w- the wilderness to nourish us and to grow us and to build us. You know, I read a book when, when Judy and I were engaged. We, had to, we read several books, and one of the books we had to read was by a guy named Gary Smalley. I forget which one it was. And he said, one of the quickest ways to build your marriage is to go Camping. and he said the reason for that the reason that the quickest way to build your marriage is to go camping is because camping at the end of the day is miserable and so you remove yourself from all the trappings from all the things that are convenient all the things that you use to escape and now you're out in the woods and you've got to deal with the fact that someone forgot to bring toilet paper or that someone burnt the chicken or that someone did something it's just a lot more difficult than when everyone's in a nice controlled environment you see the wilderness, even in our situation, is a place physically where God uses to draw us closer to each other and closer to himself. I think another thing about the wilderness though is I thought about camping. It's not only miserable but it makes you long for home. It does me. It makes you long. Is there anything better after you've been camping for a week to come home and take a shower in your own shower? There's not. It's heaven. You see, being in the wilderness is a place of protection. It's a place where God builds us, but it also makes us long for home. It's not the perfect place, but it's the place that God uses. And here's the crux of it all. Even when we are in the wilderness, which this text says we will be in the wilderness from now until Jesus comes back, the thing that sustains us is just this, is that Jesus himself went through the wilderness. And Jesus went through the wilderness and underwent an assessment the likes of which none of us can imagine. He went to the wilderness for 40 days, and while he was in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. And I always think a buddy of mine told me one time, he said, Tommy, if, if, if you could take this much temptation, and how much temptation do you think Jesus could take? In other words, Satan threw everything at Jesus that he could possibly throw at him, and Jesus withstood the temptation of Satan and the temptation of the dragon. The dragon's trying to destroy him completely successfully. And then that record is transferred to us. So now as we live in the wilderness, we actually live in the wilderness with the record of people who have survived the wilderness. Now we just have to embrace it for what it is. But even more than Jesus having lived it for us, God sends His Spirit to attend us in the midst of it. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we wander in our own wilderness, as we seek a city made by God, as we, we long for home, I pray that you would also help us to, to engage the wilderness, to redeem the wilderness, to make it more and more like the city of God. I pray that as we consider the gospel that we would be more uh, excited about the fact that you have conquered the dragon. He might rove, he might be angry, but he is gone and he is is crushed under the feet of Jesus. I pray that you would just teach us these things. In Christ's name, amen and amen.